Afternoon. Afternoon. You were hoping for Steve Higginbotham, and so was I. Um, he, uh, he let us know that he couldn't be here this year, and we hope to have him back uh, next year for this. Um, we're going to be talking about learning how to illustrate from James. And as we look at that, I think that perhaps the way that we can approach this, you, we're going to talk about James as we walk through in the auditorium. We're going to see the different sections that make up the book, and we're going to observe some of those illustrations as we go through. Uh, and so I want to spend some time looking at how James does that. I also look at, at into uh, where to find the illustrations and how to use them effectively. So that's kind of the roadmap that we're going to go this afternoon. Uh, what you will notice as you look at the book of James is that James is a master illustrator. There seems to be an illustration uh, almost every verse of the Bible. And of course, uh, he was endowed like none of us are. The Holy Spirit bore him along, using certainly his personality, his temperament, his background. But in the illustrations that he used, uh, extremely practical, uh, its source is divine authority. And so we're uh, going to look into that, and I believe it can be helpful. I thought that it might be good, by way of introduction, to observe something that was written not long ago in Christianity Today. They uh, asked three individuals who were very involved and gross in the life of the art of preaching and asked them some things under the general heading of what sermon illustrations should be banned from the pulpit. Well, you've probably some, had some illustrations that have come to your mind that you thought that it would have been better for you not to have used or for someone else not to have used, but I like what uh, some of these said. Uh, uh, Marguerite Schuster at Fuller Institute said that here's a problem that we encounter in trying to find illustrations in this technology age. And that is that if there is a very good story, what's going to happen to it? It's going to be viral. And the better the story is, the juicier it is, the more likely it is that most everybody will have seen it, read it, or heard it when you get up to share it. That's a challenge that we face when it comes to the illustration. Now, another uh, problem with illustrations was highlighted by Haddon Robinson, very much associated with uh, the art of preaching. And Robinson said, if you want to envision illustrations in a way that uh, honors their usage, you see an illustration is like footlights, where there's a stage. And what the illustration is supposed to do is shine light so that you can see the actors on the stage. But what can happen with a bad illustration is, is that footlights are off. And instead of shining up on the stage, they shine into the audience's eyes and it blinds them so that they cannot see the actor on stage. Now you think about those that are masters at illustrating and those who know how to take God's eternal truths and to highlight them and to confirm them by using good illustrations. A powerful illustration drives that point home in your heart and it lives with you. and maybe it continues to resonate because of a good illustration but perhaps all of us have been guilty of and certainly have heard illustrations that don't fall into that camp they're blinding lights that keep us from seeing the truth that god wants us to see as we use those illustrations and i thought i might give you a few of those from the book of james by way of introduction how about illustrations that are told just for the sake of the story. 
Now, maybe you're doing, you're involved in the craft. I'm imagining that if you're not preachers here, you are regularly involved in, in teaching Bible classes or other uh, material that you're presenting <coughs> publicly. And you find this juicy, funny, interesting story that just, you know, it's pithy. Doesn't necessarily go with the lesson that you're teaching. And so you'll take that illustration like a square peg and you'll try to drive it into that round hole of your lesson. That's a problem. Another problem that we run into a lot of times is that we overdo the illustration. We have too many illustrations in a point or, or in a lesson. And as a part of this, we forget that the illustration exists for the lesson. The lesson doesn't exist for the illustrations. And sometimes we'll find ourselves in a circumstance to where we use illustrations to hide poor content. But we've not had the time to sit down and exegesis and to really massage the text and to see what the, the, the points are in that lesson or develop that material. And so we can go off of these illustration sites and we can cut and we can paste and we use that to kind of hide the lack of work that we put in on the lesson. That's not really going, that's going to blind the eyes of folks who are listening to us. Or how about illustrations that call our attention away from the truth instead of pointing us toward the truth? But good illustrations are such that they can live forever in the hearts of folks along with the truth that we're teaching. Wendell Winkler taught me homiletics. I don't know how many of you knew Brother Wendell Winkler. He was a master homiletician, a, a deliverer of the message. And what he used to tell us when he taught in, in that class and also preached in the work, I guess he, he said on multiple occasions, he says, boys, I want you to go and look for illustrations like a, a bee is gathering nectar. You go these different places and you try to find where you can, the different ways that you can illustrate the lesson. And I think that's helpful. George Buttrick wrote a book, about, uh, was written about in the book by uh, T.A. Pritchard called The Story of Preaching. And in that story, he talks about Buttrick, who was the thinking man's preacher who seemed to have all the skills. And uh, Buttrick said this about illustrations, about how great good illustrations are, but he says, that a sermon or a lesson without illustrations is like a house without windows. And a lesson with poor illustrations is even worse. It's like a house with the windows broken and stuffed with raw and, and uh, uh, straw and rags. It's really going to fall short. Okay, so what I want us to do is I'd like for us to start in the book of James. I'd like us to walk through and see some of how James shows us the principles about how to illustrate our lessons. Uh, and to, to do so, I want us to, to look uh, as we go through the book of James. First principle that James teaches us, I think, is use what people know. If you have your Bibles and look in the book of James, you can see this as we go through. If you start in James chapter 1 and verse 6, James uses storms. And he uses storms to illustrate instability. Right? He says, ask in faith. Don't ask in doubting because the one that doubts is like the circle on the sea driven by the winds. Do you see how James just really draws up that picture for us and allows us to see it? Then you move on down the text of James chapter 1, verse 10 and verse 11. And he talks about the weather and plant life. And he does that to illustrate the fleeting nature of riches. That, that rich man, to, to realize how it's uh, just like that sun that scorches. All right, go down to James chapter 1, verse 23 and 24. And he uses a mirror. Probably this is one of the one we're more familiar with, right? In James, you think about illustrations from James. 
And how unforgettable is that? He says that the one who is a hearer of the word and not a doer is like the one who goes and looks at himself in a mirror. For he beholds himself and he goes his way and he immediately forgets what manner of man that he was. My wife is speaking in the room across the hall. It would mortify her if she was in the room hearing this, but y'all won't tell her, so I'm feeling good about that. I'm 53, and one of the things that happens as I age is I have less hair up here. But, you know, God's sense of humor, he allows that hair to grow different places, right? And so I, I, I don't, I'm sure none of you guys deal with this, but I have hair here, and I have, I have hair in my, in my nose. And my wife says, please take at least one turn in front of the mirror every day to make sure that you get these and these. Now, now, if I go and I have a walrus and I look at that and then I go away and don't do anything about that, how fruitless was that trip in front of the mirror? Now, I don't know that James has all that in mind, but he says, how foolish is it to look at yourself through God's word that just throws a magnifying glass on you? You see that. You see the change that Scripture says you need to make, and then you go away. What's he doing? He's using an illustration. Now, perhaps the illustration that resonates with us the most, the one that's the most protracted, is in James chapter 3. Remember, he's talking about the power of the tongue, and he pulls out different kinds of illustrations to make sure that we don't miss how the... Remember back in chapter 1, verse 26, he says, If any among you seems to be religious... And bridles not his tongue, but deceives his own heart. This man's religion is vain. He says in chapter 3 and verse 1, I don't want many of you to be teachers, knowing that we shall incur a stricter judgment. He says, for in many things we offend all. And from there he launches in the next 10 verses with a variety of illustrations. It's things that people know. You know, um, moving to Kentucky, there are a lot of horse people here. Our first foray, Brandon, into Kentucky was in, uh, going through Lexington. We were meeting um, my, uh, my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law in Indiana, over in uh, New Harmony, uh, Indiana. Great state park, great place to go on vacation. We lived in Virginia at the time, and we met, and that's where I first met Steve Johnson, went over there. And, but when we came into Lexington and saw that blue grass and all those horses, Bobby, there's a few of those little horse stables around there. I remember the time you took me there. It's incredible. But you know how, how they have horse races uh, and they put the bits in the horse's mouth to control that big, strong animal. All right, so James moves it from that and he says, ships. Not everybody could afford to go on a ship, but everybody knew about one. He says, how do you, how do you control one of those? You have this little rudder and you can control the entire ship. And then he talks about something that people of all civilizations from the beginning of time knew something about and that's fire. And how a little fire can kindle such a great conflagration that it causes all kinds of damage and trouble. That's the tongue. And he'll use a couple of other symbols, right? He'll talk about a fountain that brings forth bitter water and sweet. Things people can relate to. That's what James is doing. And that's just in the first three <coughs> chapters of, of that particular epistle. Now, you probably heard it said that the book of James is uh, a lot like the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps even an expansion on and a reflection upon the Sermon on the Mount, and it is a lot like that in a lot of different ways. Now, I want you to step out of James for a moment and go to the Sermon on the Mount and think about how Jesus went to all of these common uh, symbols, images, events, 
and items of common everyday interest to try to help people to see exactly the point that God wants to be made. And so James is a lot like the Sermon on the Mount in this regard, that he paints these pictures and he does it with things that people know. My last three works, I was in Virginia and then I was out in Colorado and moved here to Kentucky. And the last two works that I was at were in big cities, the capital of their states. Maybe a lot of uh, white collar folks, a lot of folks who transfer, they're not uh, from that area. And so adapt, we have to adapt to those kinds of environments. I come here and come to a place where people, a lot more folks were raised on a farm. A lot more people work with their hands. There are a lot more folks who have lived here and have not lived somewhere else. So we adapt to the environment where we are and we think about ways to illustrate truths in a way that people can relate to. And I think that's what James is doing in the book of James. Use what people know. Number two, illustrate with vivid imagery. Now, we just talked about James chapter 3. I won't take, take the time to do that. But he pulls out five different images. And it stands out so greatly that it, it sears on the minds of his readers that this is what damage is inflicted when you don't watch your tongue. Now you go down to James chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. He says, your silver and your gold has rusted, and your rust is a witness against you. So your flesh will be consumed like fire. Now I, I mentioned Wendell Winkler. How many of you guys remember B.P. Black? Brother B.P. Black, he wrote a book. Do you remember that? Rust is a Witness. Uh, it was one of his fundraising books. He, he was did so much to help the church with regard to giving. And that book, Rust is a Witness, talks about how in James 5 it's the wealthy and how their uh, poor stewardship was going to come back to reveal the emptiness of the ways that they've lived their lives. But look at how vivid that imagery is. Gold and silver, it rusts. And that rust, that's how cankerous this problem is. It's a witness against you. So we're looking for ways to illustrate using vivid imagery. I came across this one. I thought this was good. An arrow can only be shot by pulling it backward, right? When life holds you back with difficulties, it will launch you into something greater. Focus and keep aiming. So as we're delivering messages and we're trying to illustrate it, we're looking for vivid imagery. James shows us that. Then number three, he demonstrates something I'm going to talk more about in just a moment. Bible characters make great illustrations. I'm big on us going everywhere we can to find uh, illustrations, but don't overlook the fact that some of the best ways to illustrate texts and other people and events in the Bible is to go somewhere else in the Bible to do that. Doesn't James teach us that? He takes two people who could not be more different from one another, Rahab, the prostitute, and Abraham, the father of the faithful. And he says both of these individuals were justified by works. He uses illustrations. His audience presumably understands what it is that he's talking about. And with that, he illustrates the importance of not just believing something, but acting on that faith. And then we think about Job. Man, there's a graphic story right with illustrative material. And he says you need to be patient. Look, as the, in that class warfare of rich and poor, you need to be patient with one another. The judge stands at the door. He's just said that. And he says, be patient like Job was patient. Wait and see the end of the Lord. This is not the end. Hold on. 
Or how about down in James chapter 5 and verse 17? He talks about Elijah. We're going to talk more about that tomorrow in my assigned schedule a session in the auditorium about Elijah and prayer. It's interesting, by the way, just a kind of a spoiler teaser or whatever. Um, what does the Old Testament say about Elijah's? Does it use the word prayer with Elijah? Prayer. It does not. But James highlights prayer in James 5 and verse 17. So James, by the movement of the Holy Spirit, gives us this illustration. Another thing I would suggest is you look for threads in the book. Every book of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, has keywords. All right, and so as you look at those keywords, they serve to function to help you know what that book is about, but they can also sometimes weave together to be uh, a thread of illustrative material. So you think about the word judgment. The word judgment's found that concept, the idea of court cases and judges and judgments. They're found throughout the book of James. And so you'll go to James chapter two, for example, and you'll see what it says there that James chapter two and verse four, we judge each other unfairly. James two and verse six, the rich drag you into court. James 2, verse 12 and 13, you're going to be judged by the perfect law of liberty, and so make sure you judge each other fairly. James 3 and verse 1, teachers will incur a stricter judgment. James 4, verse 12 and 13, be careful about how you judge your brother. And then James chapter 5, verse 9 and verse 12, the judge is at the door. All right, so here's what James is doing. He is walking through, and he's talking about how brethren treat brethren. And the way we don't treat one another is by being the judge that stands in the place of the lawgiver. All right, so to do that, he uses an image. He paints a picture. So as you go all the way through this book, he's pointing you back to that imaginary court case, back to that judge. Now there's other words in the book of, of James that are key words. Faith, works, brethren. And those words give us some insights into threads. And by the way, if you have Bible software, I use Logos. And you go and you take some of those words in the English and you find out that their uh, Greek root word and see how they appear in the book. It even makes it come to life even more and paints that picture more fully. All right, number five is use illustrations to convict. Really, we're, we have a hard time getting to the bottom of all that James does. But you remember in James 1, uh, 8 and James 4, 8? He says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He paints a, a word picture there, right? A, a man with two minds. Um, a, a, it, it's a picture that he's drawing. All right, you go on down to uh, James chapter 4 and verse 4. And he says, friendship with the world is like an adulterer. James 1 and verse 26. A religious man with an unbridled tongue. He's painting that for us is self-deceived. If you show favoritism, James chapter two and verse four, you are judges with evil motives. Now this may say something to us about James's approach and his style, but he drives home his points with convicting illustrations and he shows us the importance of not just communicating information, but through our attempt to make application, we do so through illustration, okay? Now, what I want to do as we transition is to ask ourselves, we do have printed the book of James and we have 65 other books, but where do we go? Where do we find illustrative material for the lessons that we want to uh, present to others? But what I want to do is take a few moments to look at some of the areas. And again, I want to start right where we see James. James quotes four scriptures 
He uses four Bible characters as in his illustrations. All right, so it's a great place for us to go and to find illustrations. So let me just give you a few examples of what I'm talking about. How about responsibility? You're teaching or preaching a lesson on responsibility and how all of us need to roll up our sleeves to be involved. None of us are above that. Maybe in an audience like this where we have preachers among us or our elders, that we don't exempt ourselves from that. A great way to illustrate a point like that is to go to Acts chapter 28 and verse 3. You remember what happens there? The Apostle Paul, what does he do on Malta? What does he do? What does he pick up? Sticks, right? The great Apostle Paul, second greatest preacher outside of Jesus, his words by himself in 2 Corinthians notwithstanding. The great missionary. The man who's on his way to Rome to speak to, to Julius Caesar and their shipwreck. And what does he do? He gets out there and he picks up the sticks. Hey, what about work days? What about menial tasks? What about spot cleaning the, the pews? Am I above that? Or can I roll up my sleeves and be a servant? And, and I, I can do a lot of different places to illustrate that, but why not the Apostle Paul? Let me give you a couple of others. How about, of course, Providence? And what a great way to set up a lesson that you're teaching on providence by choosing from either uh, uh, Esther or Ruth or Joseph and to show how the providence of God weaves through their lives. Um, one that Brother Winkler pointed out to me I'd never seen before is an illustration on hidden cares. Y'all know, remember about Jehoram, right? Second Kings chapter 6. And there's a famine. And the famine is so severe that two women had made a, a, a dark a pact with one another that they were going to cannibalize their children and they're complaining from the the uh, room on the wall and Jehoram is passing by in his kingly garments and they talk about the, uh, the she talks about the unfairness she's hidden her child and so now we can't eat that child you remember what Jehoram does he pulls off that that robe and what's underneath sackcloth and this scratchy cloth underneath his clothes. It was often a sign of mourning, a sign of, 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 of great distress. But nobody knew it by looking at him until he took it off. I forget who it was that said this earlier. We, we play the, the foyer talk game, right? Hi, how are you? Fine. Fine. Have a good week. You too. All right, that's it. And yet, what's going on underneath? We come in with hidden cares. We come in with a scratchy, uncomfortable, terrible situation in our life. Now, there are a lot of ways to illustrate that, but why not let the power of Scripture help us to illustrate that particular point? How about the importance and value of all? You remember when uh, in the, the conquest of Canaan, they go into Bezek and they conquer a god of Bezek, and after they catch him, what do they do? You remember? cut off his thumbs and his big toes, which he had done himself. He says, it's coming back to me what I've done. And you think about how difficult it is to grab, to climb, to write, to type without your thumbs. It's what sets us apart from all the other living creatures, right? Or how about the big toe? How difficult is it to walk? You know, it, you talk to somebody who through diabetes or through some other means loses a toe, didn't have to be the big one, how hard that is, how it alters and it changes their life. Why not go to 1 Corinthians 12, 14 and following 
and to do that very thing, let's talk about the importance of every individual member by going to Scripture. That's what James does. James quotes, now he doesn't quote as much as some of the other New Testament books, but he goes back to Scripture to highlight his point, and he goes to those characters to do the same. Um, how about history? Uh, as we look at history, we, uh, we find that there's two different ways that we can look. We can go to church history. Uh, I don't really have time to, to dive into this too deeply, but uh, the story of Joe Blue, any of y'all ever use that in, in your uh, teaching material or preaching? Where he, he uh, it's a letter he wrote later in his life in the 1940s, great preacher in the Midwest. And Joe Blue talked about some of the things that he endured. He was stoned with walnuts and they put uh, dynamite under his pulpit that he had to be guarded while he preached. And, and there's really a lengthy list of things that he mentions. And of course he says at the end of that, I have not begun to suffer like my Lord Jesus Christ. But it's a great illustration about discouragement or enduring or faithfulness or priorities. Now, how many of you have heard the, the James Garfield illustration? Which one? Okay, good. I'm glad you said that, Glenn. Because the one I've usually heard is that when he became the president, what did he say? I stepped down from the highest office in the land, or that there is. Well, there's another interesting story. Right after his inauguration, about a week later, um, one of his cabinet members uh, uh, called a cabinet meeting because of the threat of, of a national crisis. And he said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to be there. And he said, what's so important that you would miss this meeting? He said, I'll be equally frank as you are. I have an appointment to meet my Lord at his table at 10 a.m. and I shall be there. You take whoever your, your president is. They don't do that anymore, do they? But what a great illustration about, from history, the priorities that we need to have. Or how about in secular history? You can look there. It was said about Alcibiades. He was wealthy. He was famous. He was a, a hero in the Peloponnesian War. He was a world traveler, but he was notoriously unhappy. And Socrates explained the reason why. He says, wherever he goes, Alcibiades goes with him. So we talk about joy. You can look there. How about decision making? Look at Winston Churchill. Uh, in the course of the war, they, they broke the code, the German code. And uh, Churchill was informed about this. The Germans were about, they found in the code, they were about to bomb Coventry. And he had a choice to make. He could either inform the citizens of Coventry, avert that bombing, and yet risk thousands upon thousands of more lives, or he could say nothing, risk the loss of hundreds of lives, and save thousands more. He made that difficult decision. Do elders face difficult decisions? Do we in our individual daily lives face those? It's a good place for us to go. I can say more about that, but I can barely see this clock up here. He, they look at James, he, he does refer to Bible history, but there's not a lot of church history at this point, right? James is probably, if not the, it's among the first books that are written, so he doesn't have a lot of church history to look back on, but he does refer to Bible history. Nature. James, uh, or the Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 6 tells you to go back to the ant. I read a story about a biologist that observed an ant that had a straw on its back and it seemed to struggle with that load. And as it did, it came to a crack in the sidewalk and it was almost as if that ant was contemplating what to do. And then suddenly took the straw off its back and laid it across the crack and went across. His burden became a bridge. 
That's God's given us that. Go to the anti-sluggers, Proverbs 6 and verse 6. And you look at James. He certainly gives us some illustrations from nature. He refers to animals, to science, to nature. He refers to land and water. And through that, he illustrates the tongue and doubt and procrastination. There's poetry. Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe try your hand writing some poetry. Um, several have, and, and it might be a good way to maybe make that truth live in a different way. Uh, but you'll find some names that will pop to the top, right? Edgar Guest is a, is a great go-to for illustrations, a bit timeless. Uh, so also the Ella Wilcox, and maybe you can think of some others. Uh, but those that can really help to say in that metrical way what we need to, to say. Uh, church bulletins, that's getting to be a little bit different resource. Uh, you preachers, how many of you still get bulletins? Paper bulletins. All right, my number's going way down, but they still send them out electronically, right? Thankfully, I can organize those better than I can those ones I have to clip out and put up. But find those bulletins that really do a good job of illustrating. I remember when I was a younger preacher, you can't go and get this resource now because I'm sure he's dead. I, I know he is. Olden Cook preached in the hill country of Texas. It was a Kerrville Herald, and he only had about 150, 200 words. But he put some of the most masterful illustrations in that little small section every week. And I clip one after the other, good illustration material. John Gibson used to do that when it was called Sixth and Israel. Cleon Lyles, a great resource. Um, you, you clip those bulletins or you file those bulletins electronically. Uh, biographies and autobiographies are a great place to find information. Uh, uh, books um, are, are another good resource. Uh, I. I used to read when I was a kid, and then I discovered sports. And I didn't read <laughs> probably another book that I, except the one I had to until I was probably, man, I, the boys were all there. Because I remember we went to the Amish country of Pennsylvania, and we stayed in this place called a Long Spruce Lane Lodge uh, right outside of Lancaster. And they had no TV. They had uh, no way of entertainment. And so when we weren't out doing eating or going somewhere else, we were there. We had this little library, and I found Watership Down. A little fictional book about rabbits and I read that book and it just opened up my eyes to a whole other world if you're not a reader become a reader and certainly religious books are great and there's some great resources there but be readers of all kinds of different wholesome good books in which you can buy I like nonfiction um, uh, history biographies autobiographies are, are good in that personal experiences use very limited in which you're not the hero of the story. Do not leave an egotistical impression when you're talking about uh, a story in which you factor in. In personal experiences, you can use uh, people in the place where you work. But may I suggest that you don't use negative ones in the from the congregation where you are currently serving. There's gonna be plenty of them, but don't use those. Uh, positive and neutral ones are good but try to find and sometimes that can be extremely powerful when you are trying to illustrate some point and you can point to somebody that's legitimate to everybody there and they say oh yeah that illustrates service for an example when I was in Colorado there was a man by the name of Wayne Nelson meek mild almost invisible in every room in which he found himself and yet he's great. Jesus was right when he says that the one who will be last among you, he'll be first. The one who is servant of all will be the one that's chief of all. In fact, we used to do a, a future preacher's training camp. I guess they still do that. 
And we, we had a service award that we renamed the Wayne Nelson Servant Award. And I, more than once, I called his name as an illustration in the pulpit there. What a great way out of our personal experience to do that. Media is a great way to do that. Pretty much, I don't subscribe to I, I, the Biblical Archaeology Review. I, I take that, uh, Gary. And it's a great, it's a lot of good stuff in there. I, so, as long as you're not talking about Bible stuff, then they, right, right. they're kind of skeptics. But there's a lot of good illustrations in there. But I don't take any magazines. So it's all electronic in here. <coughs> Uh, and there are some sermon illustration sites. Uh, if you're interested in knowing more about that, I can give you a list of those <coughs> later. But I want to spend just a few minutes just kind of driving the point home. How do we use illustrations effectively? Um, and by the way, when we think about James, James uses some of these, and maybe he uses some that we're not aware of. But he shows us the importance of illustrations, and I know that we all believe that and feel that way. But the Bible does a masterful job of illustrating heavenly truths through earthly stories, not just through parables, but through other means as well. So here's maybe 12 key words for you to keep in mind to illustrate sermons effectively. You need to make them interesting. They're, remember, they are meant to grab our attention or to make a point memorable. But let me say this about it. Beware of being one dimension. Uh, at the risk of already, I've already talked about sports. I like sports. I, I can come up with sports illustrations. I like to run. And I can give a lot of running illustrations. And the fact that some of y'all nod your head means I probably use them too often. But there's different areas where we can find ourselves with a greater proclivity. We, we, you know, but don't let everything be current events. Don't let everything be quotes and um, uh, from one particular source, uh, poems, that sort of thing. Number two need to be lasting. What's the preacher's joke about a sermon? You can preach it again if you do what? Change the illustration. Let me bust your ego. Preach a sermon then three weeks later preach it again. Just change the stories. You know there'll be folks come out the door who were there for the first one who said well I haven't heard a sermon like that in years. And then you say yeah that's right you haven't heard it in years. It's three weeks ago. Alright. Lasting. So why do we say that? Because people remember the stories. So be careful. Don't use those stories over and over again. Uh, try to remember that if you use them. Make them learning tools. The purpose of the illustration is to aid in teaching the lesson. Remember, it's not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. Those less, uh, illustrations to be effective need to be understandable. In other words, make sure that people understand why you're using them, how you're using them. Just as an aside, uh, if any of you have books that were donated to you, how many of you have illustration books in your library? How many of you have them that uh, have that the, the, the brown and they're kind of crispy and that sort of thing? Yeah, they're from the uh, Woodrow Wilson administration. Yeah. Be careful. The English language is a living language and we don't talk like we did in 1919. So you need to make sure that you adapt that. Take a great illustration from the Elizabethan English time and change it up, right? And then the thing about illustrations is if they're old enough, they're new. Because there's folks who hadn't heard those before, right? All right, number next. To be effective, they need to be supportive. Again, don't overdo them. It's not about the illustrations. It's about the Bible lesson. Um, number next, they need to be truthful. You would think that that's uh, obvious, but uh, when people talk about preacher stories, is there a connotation they have with that? You know, they talk about fish tales, 
right? How big's my fish? When, when sometimes you'll even see it. You say, this is not a preacher's story. And there's this knowing look in the audience because people have heard those. Be very careful about presenting. If you don't know if it's true or not, be careful by leading off by saying a true story is told. Um, I used an, an illustration. I thought it was true. Uh, it was in the earlier days of the internet technology and I, it was purported to be true and I told it that way until I found out. I don't know how to, to tell the folks where I told them. I, it was an honest mistake, but we need to be very careful. And we need to be careful about appropriating someone else's experience as our own. I was in a forum one time and I heard a man tell a story. And he told that story as if it happened to him and his sister. Thing is, that story's been around. Never did anything to qualify that. Several of us, a lot of preachers in that audience, we've used that story before. And it really undermined the credibility of that speaker. You gotta be very careful, be truthful, be realistic. Um, in addition to truthful, make sure they're reasonable, something that people can relate to. Um, be, they need to be assorted. Vary the types of illustrations that you use. We've already mentioned that. Make sure they're tasteful. <laughs> Avoid overly shocking, graphic, suggestive, morbid, salacious illustrations. Brother Winkler used to say, avoid creating in someone's mind the very thing that you're seeking to condemn. It was, that was in the context of sexual immorality. Don't tell some story that paints a picture of people's minds of the thing you tell them, you're not supposed to do this. We gotta be very careful in trying to make truth live that we are tasteful. When I was a very young preacher, I told a story <coughs> to illustrate the cross. And I told a story about, I don't know if you've ever heard this story before. Maybe you've used it before. I did on this occasion. Gary may have been present that day. It was about the, the, dog, the boy with the dog in the boat. You ever heard that one? The dog fell out of the boat and was trying to get back in. I'll just mention there's a dog paddle. I told that story. Uh, a sweet, wonderful, godly woman walked out of the auditorium. And after services, she came up to me and she said, you know, um, I appreciate what you were trying to do, but I don't know that the cross needs that kind of help in, in illustrating it in that way. It was really, and I'll be telling you more later, I'll tell you here, I've only got a, a minute 46 left anyway, but we gotta be careful not to be distasteful in trying to present truth. Uh, it also needs to be illuminating. The point is to shed light on the Bible truth. It should help produce an aha moment that drives home the point. It, it needs to be opportunistic. Use ho uh, holidays, use congregational situations, um, use current events. Uh, that could be a very effective way to drive home your point. And would you not agree with me they're necessary? Remind yourself, without them, sermons are dry and lifeless. They can make all the difference and whether or not the point sinks in, if it convicts and it moves the heart of the hearer. You know, it said that the book of James is about genuine religion, James 1, 1 through 27. It's about genuine faith, 2, 1 through 3, 13. It's about genuine wisdom, James chapter 3, verse 13 through chapter 5 and verse 20. In the book of James, Christians are urged to walk in a very practical way. And so it's good for us to take a chapter out of James' illustration book and use illustrations wherever we can to help to, to aid those in hearing God's word to apply the truth of the information to that illustration. Guys, you have been very forbearing. I appreciate you putting up with a pinch hitter for our brother Steve. Let's be praying for him that he's better very soon.